Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning, LifePoint. It's good to see everybody here today, and we are continuing, as Isaac said, our series entitled Brand New, and if you're new today, maybe this is your first time, and you've kind of been wrestling with whether or not to try church again. What we're going to talk about today is actually one of the reasons you might have just been a little hesitant. In fact, if you've missed any of the series, in week one, we talked about our mission as a church, and that is we want to simply share Jesus and build believers. In week two, we talked about where we're going in our future, in our vision, and that is we want to be a place where anyone can belong before they believe. And last week in week three, we actually talked the details of our local church, LifePoint, and we talked about some of the great things that are happening together in the future. And I just want to say thank you for all the positive feedback you've given in saying, I am in, I am trusting God and his faithfulness. We know this is God's church. We know we are in good hands. And we're taking this journey of faith together. Now, what is this series all about? 2,000 years ago, the founder of Christianity came to earth and he introduced and launched something brand new. And that's what we're going to talk about. And what we're really trying to separate out is this new thing Jesus started versus the old thing that already existed because we as people keep trying to gravitate back to the old thing and leave behind the brand new thing that Jesus started. So we've got to identify, well, what is this old thing that we keep wanting to gravitate toward? And we've just been calling it the temple model. And the temple model really has two priorities. The temple model is about a sacred place and about sacred laws, which means we attend and we learn and then we can go back to our life. But it really drives a question in our minds when we've embraced the temple model. And this is what we all gravitate toward. And if I'm honest, this is how I gravitate it's this question that we keep asking when we come across people who are different from us. We ask, well, what does the law require of me? And this is what the people, when Jesus showed up on earth, continually asked themselves, what does the law require? And I can decide if I'm right, and I can decide if you are right, and then I can act accordingly. When I base everything on this question, on this thinking, Jesus shows up, though, and he began to replace sacred places with sacred people and sacred laws with a sacred love. And he introduced a brand new way of thinking. Instead of always thinking, what does the law require of me? Jesus introduced this question, what does love require of me? And it drove people crazy. So much so, it wasn't Judaism 2.0 that he was introducing. It was something completely new. We know that because the religious leaders responded to this being the way that people think, that they actually began to be, see Jesus as so disruptive that they wanted to arrest and have him executed. It wasn't something that they were teaching. This was something brand new. And Jesus' earliest followers began to operate with this kind of thinking, with this kind of motive in their faith, and all of a sudden, the church began to be irresistible. As they were reaching out to the poor, as they were reaching out to the widows, as they were reaching out to those who were on the margins, who had been forgotten, and they were just simply loving, even when people disagreed with them, even when people behaved differently than them, they just continually asked the question, what does love require of me? And all of a sudden, the church 
was irresistible. And one of the first followers of Jesus is a man named Apostle Paul. And here's what he said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. He said, the only thing that counts as a result of what Jesus introduced is faith expressing itself through, and say this last word with me, love. Faith expressing itself through love, Paul said, is the only thing that counts. Well, that's very, very different. And now let me just tell you what you already know. Over the last 2,000 years, as Christians, as Jesus followers, we've been having an ebb and flow trying to wrestle with law versus love. The temple model versus the Jesus approach. And sometimes we do pretty well, sometimes not so well. We keep kind of going back and forth, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago whenever we had the the Roman Empire with Constantine in the 4th century, how they co-opted the faith, and all of a sudden it was back to law. And then we kind of had a season where it was back to love, and then we had, you know, the whole... Uh, you know, 11th century wasn't so good for the Christian faith, and then all of a sudden we move, it was a little bit better, and then all of a sudden we get to the 16th century, and now there's another date. As we fast forward the Christian calendar, and we get to 1517, and there's this event that many of us are familiar with called the Protestant Reformation. And in the Protestant Reformation, there was a man named Martin Luther who went and said, I don't think the Pope is using his power appropriately. In fact, I think he's abusing his power. And he began to protest some things, including selling indulgences or claiming that he had a voice in the afterlife. And guess what happened? Mr. Luther found himself excommunicated. Martin Luther didn't care. You know why? He didn't even believe the Pope had the power to excommunicate him. And so he introduced thinking like sola scriptura which simply means Scripture alone. Because Martin Luther believed, like many of us believe, that the Scriptures, not the church, have authority in our lives. And he was introducing a new way of thinking. Unfortunately, he has this quote that got abused many years ago. He says, A man, a simple layman, armed with Scripture, is greater than the mightiest pope without it. The problem is we began to use it as if we were arming ourselves with Scripture. And without meaning to, the result of this thinking is that the Scriptures did what Martin Luther was protesting with the papal authority. The Scriptures then became a weapon. The Scriptures became the weapon that was used to divide. And people shifted from what does the law require of me to this new question, but it was based in the same root, and that is, what does the Bible require of me? In other words, what are the rules? What is the policy? What are, what is the, what are the, the laws that help me determine if I'm right and if you are right? And love was diminished while the great Bible was being magnified. Sadly, there was greater division in Christianity that followed that season than maybe any other time in our history. And if you know much about history, you know what resulted because here we have some of the denominations that we know today. As a result of this moment here when the Reformation took place, Protestantism didn't stay that way. It became this. And all the denominations that we know, many of us have a background with, and it didn't end there because over the last few years, there are now more than 1,000 Protestant denominations around the world. Now here's the question. What in the world divided them? 
What in the world divided them and caused the church to become increasingly resistible? Was it because they loved better than us? Was it because they loved differently than us? It was because they interpreted the scriptures differently than us. And when we answered the question, what does the Bible require? You answered it differently than me, so I'm starting a new denomination, and we can no longer have fellowship with each other. And this happened over and over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves back to the temple model, and Protestants have been beating each other over the head with the Bible ever since, answering the question, what does the Bible require of me? And I can't help but think the saddest tragedy of it all is that love was lost. Jesus came and introduced something brand new, and we keep trying to gravitate back to law every single time. And I wonder if Jesus and Paul are in heaven shaking their heads thinking, didn't we cover this already? Haven't we already gone down that road? Where Jesus is the one, remember what he said in John 13, 34 and 35? He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he goes further and said, it is by this, this love, that you will, everyone will know that you are following me and that you are my disciples. If you get the right interpretation of Scripture, no, if you love one another. And then Paul, his earliest follower, followed up and said, yeah, in Galatians 5, 6, he says, then the only thing that counts is expressing itself through love. But we keep going, nope, you don't believe it quite right, so we're going to the other side of town. And I wonder if they just keep shaking their head going, guys, no, that's the temple model. Sacred places, sacred laws. He introduced sacred people with a sacred love. And it was brand new. We keep drifting toward law. And it didn't start with Martin Luther. It didn't start with Constantine. Did you know it started 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, they were already having this argument. They were already having this battle. Like the who's who of Christians that we know, they were already arguing over this. It's something in the human heart that causes us to drift toward law, that causes us to drift away from love. And 20 years after Jesus ascended, that was the very first controversy in the history of the church. And you know what question they were trying to answer? This question. Well, who's the church even for? Is it for those people? Is it for those people? Is it for those people who believe this way, who act that way? Who's the church really for? And can I tell you, 2,000 years later, we're still wrestling with this question. Who's the church really for? Who should be here? And maybe who shouldn't be here yet? Who's the church really for? And the problem is, this whole argument that we're about to look at, it's all the apostles' Apostle Paul's fault that we're having this argument. He's the one that went around the Mediterranean. You may remember there in the first century, we looked at this when we went through the book of Acts, and he's the one who kept saying, come on, I don't care who you are, you can come. No matter if you're a Gentile, meaning you're a non-Jewish person, feel free to come. He was saying, I know you, you have offensive and, and repulsive behavior to some, but come on, you can come as long as you simply trust this Jesus, you can follow this Jesus. And the Apostle Paul had the audacity to open the door to anyone who wanted to follow Jesus. And more and more Jewish people were getting more and more bothered by this approach of the Apostle Paul. And it was becoming famous, or in their mind, infamous, for the way that the Apostle Paul was behaving. He's letting anybody in. And they're going, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because they assumed 
because Jesus was Jewish that you had to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus, or you had to at least become Jewish. And Paul's out there going, no, everybody, come on, come with me, let's trust Jesus and follow Jesus. And we're about to have a big blow-up, a big controversy. It's the very first one, and maybe some things have never changed. And if you're new here today, and maybe you've not felt welcomed by the church at times, by insiders like me in the church, can I just confess to you why we struggle to be as gracious as we want to be? It's because internally we are trying to balance these two things, grace and truth. You see, we want everyone to know that God's grace, that God loves everyone. We want everybody to know that. But at the same time, we also know with truth that we want everyone to know God's word because we know that will make your life better. And where it gets really complicated is we don't know which one to lead with. And so we wrestle, and sometimes we aren't as welcoming, as warm, and as loving as we want to be because we're wrestling with these two things. And guess what? It didn't start with us. From the very beginning, this has been our battle. And so I want you to see this first controversy, this first argument, this first debate, because the truth is we're still debating it today as churches, as individual followers of Jesus, this is a debate you're having in your own heart at times. And let's see how they concluded this age-old debate. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to see this argument. It's an important one because it's one that we still have in the church. It's in Acts chapter 15, if you've got your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the pew. You can just grab it, and you can find the book of Acts by turning uh, to page 896. And we're going to look together in Acts chapter 15. I want you to see this great argument because Paul and his companion Barnabas have been on their first missionary journey around the Mediterranean and they're coming all the way back to Israel. They're in northern Israel. And they come across some Jewish Jesus followers who say, hey, do you know what the law requires? I've heard about these people that you've been inviting to follow Jesus, but they said, and they begin to list some rules. Maybe you know some people like that. Maybe if we're honest, sometimes we're that way. Acts chapter 15, the second half of verse 1, it says, here are the rules the Jewish Jesus followers wanted to let Paul know that he needs to teach his people. It says, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, the law, you cannot be saved. Wow. Surgery is required to attend church. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? And Paul and Barnabas are like, excuse me, what? And they're saying, no, no, no. They started with this question, well, what does the law require of me? This is what's required. Unless you, we know because Moses, unless you are circumcised, you can't attend church, so surgery, yeah, you've got to do that. And all those people you're inviting to Jesus, nope, nope, not so fast. Well, Paul and Barnabas have seen God do so many amazing things that it immediately angered them to the point they began an argument. They began to debate. So look at verse 2, it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I would love to hear this debate. I would love to hear how they responded, knowing what they know and seeing what God has done through them and their ministry. After all, it's their fault they're in this debate. They're the ones going around telling everybody you can just trust Jesus and follow him. No matter what you've done, what you're doing, what you believe, and how you behave, you can just come out on in as long as you trust Jesus. And then their argument is so effective. Look at the next part of verse 2 here. It says, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, apparently by those listening, 
along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem. We're going up because it's geographically elevated to see the apostles and elders about this question. You say, well, what's the question? Well, it's this. They're going back to who is the church for? They're asking, do you have to, as a Gentile, become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? Who is the church for? So now we're about to see this famous historical moment. It's called the Jerusalem Council, where these early elders and leaders of the early church come together, and they would kind of decide important issues. And this was a very important issue. Who is the church for? So the who's who of the early church come together. People like Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, the half-brother of Jesus, are all gathered there debating this question and we pick up this debate now they're back they're actually in Jerusalem before the council trying to answer the question who is the church for and we pick up Peter of all people answering the question in verse 10 look what Peter says he says now then to the council why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of these Gentiles these non-Jewish people a yoke that neither we as Jewish people nor our ancestors have been able to bear. In other words, we have over 600 Jewish laws. We're not even following our parents, our grandparents. They didn't even follow them very well. We wouldn't have needed a Savior Jesus to die on a cross had we been following them well. And why are we then asking others to follow the laws that we ourselves aren't following? And the council's listening and they're going, that's a pretty good argument. And then Paul and Barnabas have had enough. And they stand up, and everybody gets quiet because they're famous. They're the ones who've been traveling around the then-known world, and they've got all these stories, and they're coming back, and for the first time, they're kind of giving the ultimate missionary update, and they begin to share what has happened on their journey. And look at verse 12. It says, And the whole assembly became silent as these who's who begin to speak, Paul and Barnabas. And look what they begin to do. They begin to listen to Paul, Barnabas and Paul telling about all the life change that's happened, all the signs and all the wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And they tell story after story after story after story. And finally, somebody on the council says, enough. I don't want to hear any more. We have enough information. We have enough evidence to answer the question, who's the church for? And I want to just once and for all declare the answer to that question. And you know who it was that stood up and said, enough? And who declares the answer to the question? It's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who himself, before Jesus rose from the dead, didn't believe that Jesus was actually God the Son. After all, it's his brother. And if you wonder what faith would require, imagine thinking that your sibling is the Son of God. Right? James is like, I know he does some cool stuff, but I've seen his bedroom. He's, he's my brother. But when he rose from the dead, James, he's God. He's the resurrected Savior. And he becomes an early leader in the church. But he didn't always believe, but now he more than believes. And he says, enough. I have an announcement to make. Who the church is for? And in his announcement, it sets the compass for LifePoint Church. I want you to see it in verse 19. Who's the church for? James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And he drops the gavel. 
and the decision is final. And this was the answer to the question. And so I want you to read it out loud with me. This is the answer to the question, who is the church for? Say it with me. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And James says that's the answer to the question. We should not make it difficult. Court adjourned. Church is not just for insiders. Church is for everyone. Why? Because everyone is a sacred person made in his image whom Christ died for. And everyone is worthy of the sacred love that Jesus displayed on the cross. This is a message that we should not make difficult for anyone to hear. And the Jesus that we should not make it difficult for anyone to know. Court adjourned. Question answered. Things were rocking along pretty good. Until around the 4th century when Constantine co-opted Christianity and all of a sudden we were fighting in Jesus' name. And now you could only believe if you fought on the, wrong, on the right side. And things are going pretty well. We get to the Reformation and all of a sudden, once again, we're battling over whether or not we're interpreting Scripture right. And you can only come to our church if you believe right. And you can only go to their church if you believe right. And all of a sudden, well, are we making it difficult for people who are turning to God or what? And we have the ebb and flow throughout our history of how to be like Jesus. You've got to follow it the way we do. You've got to follow him the way we do. It turns out sometimes we do make it difficult because we focus less on not making it difficult and we focus a little more on are they violating rules and which one? Are they violating laws and which one? But life point, here's what I know about you, and I've picked this up in the year and a half I've been here, you really love well. And we have opportunities to love even more. And our mission is to share Jesus and build believers, and we really do want to be a place where anyone can belong before they believe. We really do want to be a place that we don't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. But can I give all of us a warning, as we've talked about that over the last three weeks, if we drift, and history says we will, if we drift, it will be because of one of these three reasons. And I want to walk through them as a warning. As we go forward, if we drift, it will be because, number one, we will drift toward insiders and away from outsiders. If we drift, it will be because we drift toward insiders and away from outsiders. And let's be honest, it's easy to do because, after all, insiders are the ones who give the money to make all the ministry happen. They're the ones whose voice is loudest and we hear most consistently. And then let's be really honest, we love each other. We're friends and we get to do life together. And so it's easy for us to drift toward the insider and away from the one who's trying church for the first time and retrying or trying faith for the first time. Church is not for insiders only. All are worthy of the sacred love of Jesus. Secondly, if we drift, it will be because we drift toward law and away from grace. And look, policies can be a guardrail that are necessary. But policies have a way of stopping conversations. And if we always want a policy for everything, a rule for everything, it has a way of keeping the outsiders outside. It's a little cleaner, it's a little easier, but it also makes it a little more difficult, doesn't it? If we really want to have a conversation and let people sit at the table and say, so tell me your story, how'd you get here? What's life been like for you? That's a different place to be than just putting a policy in place. Who's allowed in and who's not. And then thirdly, if we drift, it will be because we drift toward preserving instead of 
going. And this is so natural because most churches become less mission-driven mission driven, and more preserve-what-I-have-driven, right? And one of the scariest things of all to me is the typical progression of a church, which we looked at last week. The typical progression of a church is there is a man who has a mission. God allows there to be a movement. We are tempted by a monument, and we often become a museum. And none of us want to be a museum because only dead things are in a museum. I like to visit a museum. I don't want to live in a museum. And we all feel that way. All that should scare all of us. God didn't call us to preserve. God commanded us to go and make disciples. So there's a current trend. There's a current drift that will pull us away from where I believe we genuinely want to go. And though we genuinely want to go and become a place where anyone can belong before they believe, the drift will be that we actually become a church where anyone can belong after they believe. And this is because the question we'll often ask is, yeah, but what does the law require of me instead of what does love require of me James is the one who said I answer the question who's the church for he said let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God where did James learn that from his brother Jesus remember he's the one who people like Jesus and people who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus so now let me ask you a real personal question do people who are nothing like you like you and I'll confess with you this isn't something I've figured out and I'm doing great. This is something I'm learning and leaning into more and more because I am convinced this is the way of Jesus. But I'll confess to you, it was just three or four years ago when I was pastoring a church in Silicon Valley where I was going with another Christian pastor friend to a luncheon of religious leaders there in the community. And as I looked around the table, there were Muslim leaders, there were Hindu leaders, there were Baha'i leaders, and he and I were the only ones who would follow Jesus. And we were out number two to one or three to one. And if I'm really honest, and I might as well be, I felt really uncomfortable. Because in my mind, here's what I was thinking. Why are we having lunch together? We believe so fundamentally differently. It doesn't make any sense for us to be here at the table together. And I felt a little judgmental, I felt a little afraid, and I felt a whole lot uncomfortable. Meanwhile, my friend Dave, he was being warm, he was being kind, he was taking an interest in them and their, their families, even their ministries, and they were kind of, you know, reciprocating his kindness back to him, and there's Mark over on the side, trying my best to keep a smile, and internally, I was thinking, what does the law require of me? Where in the Bible can I find permission to be at this table? Right? This is what I was thinking, and I was wrestling with what I thought was the right thing to wrestle with. And as I went out to the parking lot afterwards, Dave, this other pastor friend, he looked at me and he goes, hey man, so were you uncomfortable in there? And I said, yeah, I was very uncomfortable. He goes, yeah, isn't that great? Isn't that great? He goes, yeah, I found that love thrives best in discomfort. And even though all the other religious leaders who were there didn't believe anything like Dave, they all liked Dave. And isn't that the way of Jesus? 
So let me ask you, do people who are nothing like you, like you? Let me push it a little bit more. Do people who watch MSNBC like you? Do people who watch Fox News like you? Does your spouse, when you're in disagreement, how do you react? When the coworker has a disagreement, how do they react? When the friend on social media has a disagreement, there's something they're behaving differently, believing differently, how do you react? Do you say the thing that you think will make you feel better? Do you type the thing that you think will make you feel better? How do you respond? Are you coming from a place of what does the law require, what is right, what is good, what is true? Or do you come from a place of what does love require of me? And before you respond the next time, can I encourage you to consider what Jesus reminded us of the night before he gave his life for us. When Jesus said, a new, say this word with me, command. I wish he would have said suggestion. I do. A new command I give you. This is the new covenant. This is the game changer. Everything's different from here on out, Jesus is saying, to love one another. And as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And it is by this, this love, that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What he's saying is if you are a Jesus follower, you are commanded, I am commanded to lead with love. And that means there are going to be times where my job is just to not make it difficult for people who were turning to God. And in this moment, the night before Jesus gave his life, Jesus raised the bar. Because up until that moment, we're thinking like golden rule stuff. We're thinking, yeah, I will treat you the way I want you to treat me. And Jesus raises the bar and he goes, no, no, no. You treat people the way he has loved us. And that's a completely different standard, isn't it? He's saying, I want you to love them the way I have loved you. Not the way you want them to love you. You've already been loved on a cross. He's demonstrated his love for you in the most sacrificial way. And he's saying, I want you to love others this way. He's saying, the person who sees abortion differently than you, I want you to love them the way I have loved you. The person who sees sexual identity different than you, I want you to love them the way I have loved you. And then he goes on, you say, well, how did he love? Well, the very next day, he went to the cross, and he displayed his love for all of us, for me and for you. And then he says, now I want you to go and do that. I want you to be sacrificially. I want you to go to the person who sees gun control differently than you and love them the way that I've loved you. I want you to go and see the person who sees immigration differently than you, and I want you to love them the way that I love you. And we're going, yeah, but what does the law require? He goes, no, 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 no. What does love require? It is through love that everyone will know that you are my disciples. This is the new command that I am giving you, that you lead with love. And you don't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. And this is a new covenant. And I don't know about you, I can read that all day and I can want that all day and everything in me keeps wanting to leave this brand new covenant. And I want to return back to the temple model. And that is back to the original question. Yeah, but what does the law require? Or, or I'll give it the modern version, thanks to the Solo Scriptura. What does the Bible require? It just feels cleaner, it feels easier, it keeps us separated, it's less messy. And then Jesus comes along and gives this new command. He gives this new covenant. And in it, he introduces the question, 
that I haven't wrestled enough with in my life. I don't know about you, but that is, what does love require? What does love require? And can I just say, when we embrace this question, oh, the church becomes irresistible again. And once again, love will shine in discomfort, and love will even shine against the backdrop of evil. You see, it was in June of 2015 that the unthinkable happened. That was when a young white man walked into that church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was a predominantly African-American church, and he did the unthinkable thing and and opened fire, and nine people were killed. The, The evil thing is he actually attended the Bible study before committing the crime. And in that place, if I were one of the victim's family members, I would have been going, okay, what does the law require here? I want justice, I want revenge, and I want to say my peace. And when the family members, these Jesus followers of those who were gathered in that Bible study, when the family members gathered for the first time at the trial, and they for the first time had a chance to actually speak directly to this gunman, one by one, instead of hate, which they were entitled to, instead of anger, which they were entitled to, they looked the gunman in the eye, and they began to speak for the first time. And it was people like Nadine Collier, whose 70-year-old mother was tragically killed in that crime. She looked at the gunman, and she said what most of them said. She said, you took something precious from me, but I forgive you. I want you to know that I am praying for you. And love outshined hate. And seven years later, we're still talking about it. Because love is irresistible. Love is the hallmark of the Jesus follower. And love is how we lead. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Life point, I just want to say this. If we get this right, and I believe we genuinely want to, if we get this right, when you and I see someone who is different from us, who believes differently than us, who behaves differently than us, may we quickly embrace the question, what does love require of me in this moment? It isn't an option. It is a command. And if we get it right, our families and our community will see something brand new. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is the hardest thing in the world we can possibly try and do. To instead of embracing the law in each and every situation and demanding justice and saying, this is wrong, this is right, I want to separate myself from those who I see as wrong. Instead, step into that place of discomfort and let love thrive. Father, there is no way we can do that on our own. We need you 
We need your spirit to reign in us in order to have that kind of transformation. But God, let us be a place. Let us be a people who don't just talk about that on Sunday, but we demonstrate that throughout the week. We move into the uncomfort. We move into the messy. And we show love. God, let it be for your glory. Let it be a demonstration of what you've done for us on the cross. Let it be a brand new thing right here in Collin County. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.